Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. It is November 16th, 2017, and on this week's show, America's biggest documentary festival, Kickstarter's biggest news since its launch, what's the best way to up-res VHS footage of your film, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. everybody, welcome to this week's show coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Now I say as always, but not really always because we just had our first ever two week break. Um, And for a very, very good reason, as you all know from months of hearing about it, Mr. John Fusco was out shooting his first short. So John, welcome back. I'm so happy you're here. And how did it go? Uh, it went great. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's really a strange short, but the footage so far I haven't even really started editing. I'm gonna start editing tomorrow, but the footage looks great. Uh, we only lost one scene in DIT, so that's great. <laughs> you, you lost a scene in download? Yeah, yeah. I we I mean it was a very small crew, and uh, you know you have people doubling up on things and. Sometimes things fall through the cracks, and uh, in this case, you know, the person that was charged with downloading everything had too much on his plate, and uh, we ended up shooting over a scene, I think, without, we, we like, formatted the card without downloading it, so. Ugh. It's okay, though. I mean. You <clears throat> have a healthy perspective. I'm glad to see that, because I'm sure it was, like, a punch in the gut at first. Yeah, yeah it was fine. I mean, the thing that I really most learned is that, you know, you have to accept those punches and roll with it and like if everyone was going to be upset about the fact that we lost a scene then the set wouldn't be fun and it wouldn't be good and we wouldn't have gotten uh the rest of the amazing stuff that we did so reshoots maybe maybe i'll just edit that scene out who knows it might be uh ended better that way I mean, if anything, first-time short makers, like, frequent mistake is putting too much, like, leaving too much in. So, yeah, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I learned the importance of a DIT. (laughs) DIT Um, is vital. It's vital. It's, uh, you know, it's not very much. If you can have him double up on something else, maybe, like, a script supervisor slash DIT, I think that's uh, the way to go But uh, for for low budget. But, um yeah, it's important to have someone there that's always thinking about that. Not a sexy job, but I mean, that's a, that's like the best case, I think, of like learning in the field. You know, we write all the stuff for No Film School and we give all the advice all day long. But until you're out there, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily realized the importance of something like that, for example. So yeah, it's great. And everybody I've talked to about it has told me that a similar thing has happened to them. So. You know, I'm not I mean, too... it happened on Oliver Stone's Alexander. Yeah. Not for the Dang. same reason. Some film got x-rayed, but like they lost a day's shooting because some film got x-rayed in some stupid airport in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, shit happens. Uh, we still got an amazing movie and my DP, uh, Adam Gundersheimer, killed it. My production designer, Vanessa Haddad, it's awesome. Uh, the guys from The Eyes of My Mother, actually the gaffer of The Eyes of My Mother was my gaffer and I had no idea <laughs> going oh, oh. in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone was super on point. Everyone brought their A game and it was great and it's weird to be back. <laughs> well, we can't wait to see it. And we were really busy here while you were gone. By we, I mean me. Um, but, you know, I'm still waiting for that pizza you're going to buy me. 
The entire pizza. I have no money left in uh, my uh, bank account. The pizza account. you're going to make me? <laughs> yeah, um, I can do that. Something. I, I but... also want to point out that uh, I'm not going to comment on the sexiness of DITs because I'm going to stay neutral on that. But DIT is a very sexy job. I was trying to segue, Charles. You're the first person. <laughs> yeah, but I can't let you say DIT is not sexy because it's a sexy job and I just got to get it in there. You're the first person who gets to see all the footage. Mm. Often you're the first person who gets to like, color all the footage. It's a very sexy job. Yeah, and you know a lot about technology, which is important in today's age. So pretty sexy. And cool. super employable. I take it back. DIT, hot. There we go. Hotness. Anyway, so like I was saying, we were busy here. One of the main things that was going on was Doc NYC Festival. Um, and we've been doing a bunch of coverage while you were gone. Um, it actually opened last Thursday and it closes tonight. It's actually, it's only in its eighth year, but it's become the largest documentary festival in the U.S., which I was surprised to learn. Um, it had 111 feature-length docs this year and over 250 films and events overall. So kind of similar to what John said, um, if you heard our episode about New York Film Festival, this one falls at the end of the year, so it doesn't have as many premieres. Like of those 200-something films, only 23 are world premieres and 23 were U.S. premieres. But the ones that are playing are the best of the best. In fact, one of the festival's artistic directors, Tom Powers, is the documentary programmer for Toronto International Film Festival. So a lot of those films cross over. This just gives sort of more shine to the docs. And if you're in the doc world at all, this has become absolutely the American festival to be at, uh, especially since everybody comes. This year, they boasted that 350 doc makers and special guests were in person to present their films or participate on panels. And a standout feature is that there's a concurrent Doc NYC Pro conference with some of the most well-programmed panels that I've seen at any festival. I went to the day that was focused on cinematography, and I'll be writing up a couple panels on getting big images with a small budget and which cameras and tech gadgets doc filmmakers are using these days, which was was a really fun one. Interestingly, Charles, you appreciate this. Uh, one of the big-time DPs that was on the panel was touting the Mavic, the little tiny DJI Mavic. He was like, you know what? I could throw it in my backpack, like the same kind of stuff you've said on the show. He can throw it in his backpack. And believe it or not, the footage can sort of integrate seamlessly with his red weapon. It's crazy what DJI does. Although it's not the smallest. The smallest, the spark, the images don't cut in fine. The Mavic is like one up. I mean, it's it's like not, it's still under $1,000. It's But yeah, it totally, and it like folds into nothing. Amazing. So we already have posts up from panels about distribution, observational cinema, money-saving post-production tips, and also some cool posts from festival filmmakers themselves like... Nathan Fitch wrote one for us. Um, he made a film called Island Soldier, and he wrote about the steps he had to take to embed in the U.S. military in Afghanistan for his film. And we also have a post from Stephen Morse from Eurotrump about how he made and distributed that entire film in only nine months after his previous film, Amanda Knox, took a more typical five and a half years. And now he's started a whole production company with the goal of turning around films really quickly. Duck NYC also holds Visionaries Tribute Awards, where Sheila Nevins and Errol Morris received Lifetime Achievement Awards this year. And Morris's film Wormwood about the 1953 death of a CIA agent also had its New York City premiere at the festival. Um, and Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady received the Robert and Ann Drew Award for Observational Filmmaking, and they were our guests on the No Film School podcast last week, so look out for that episode, which I think came out really well. It's called How to Shoot Where You're Not Allowed. I saw about 15 of the films um, and recorded three really great podcasts that I'll be talking about over the next couple weeks. 
Um, I saw most of them as screeners, as we usually do as press. But the festival highlights for me were the two that I saw in theaters. One was a festival premiere, so the first ever screening. Um, it's called Godfathers of Hardcore, and it's about the legendary hardcore band Agnostic Front. Ooh. I know. It was Yeah. So it was directed by this really great guy called Ian McFarland, who himself was a member of that scene as a part of the band Blood for Blood for 20 years. It's cool because often these films are either made by someone in the scene or by a filmmaker not in the scene. And neither one really works out that well. But since he himself is a trained an editor by trade and has directed several things and he's part of the scene, it really turned out to be kind of one of the best like music docs I've seen in a long time. And it, a little known fact about me is that I grew up in that scene. So you wouldn't guess by looking. But um, yes, I am a former hardcore kid. Um, and it was really amazing to go to this premiere screening in the town where Agnostic Front is from. The theater was full of old punk rockers and many of the people featured in the movie. And it was like to say it was a lively screening is like, a you know, an understatement. Uh, and it was also really good. On a purely aesthetic level, the hardcore look ages the best. Like when you see a 45 year old person who's still sort of hardcore and there's like some tattoos and a wallet chain, it's not nearly as obnoxious as like a 45 year old goth. Oh, or like a 45 year old raver. Yeah. You're totally right. It's like a completely like, oh, you might actually have a job at an ad agency or something. Like you're employable, but still reasonably <laughs> edgy. It's like of all the 90s subcultures, I would never have bet that hardcore would be the one that has transitioned most gently to middle age. Well, it's funny you said that because actually I never thought about this before, but they sort of dress like the style is kind of middle-aged like they wear knit caps and beaters and like jeans and workwear and often like a button-up white work shirt yeah 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 they i gotta say those guys were looking a little little haggard but but pretty good in my book it made me feel kind of old although i was like i can't possibly look as old as these old fuckers (laughs) (laughs) anyway the other screening that i went to and i loved so much was faces places Um, or Visage Village in its original French. Um, It's the collaboration between legendary 89-year-old filmmaker Agnes Varda and 33-year-old street artist J.R. It premiered back at Cannes, and not only was it the most charming, uplifting film that I've seen probably all year, but Varda herself came for the Q&A en route between L.A. and her home country. And seeing her get a deserved standing ovation and hearing her Q&A was just awesome. I mean, you don't get to see these real legends in person very often. So that is the perfect segue to our first news item, which is that the first 2017 Oscars were handed out on Saturday night in the form of the Governor's Awards, one of which was offered to Madame Agnes Varda herself. In addition to Varda, filmmaker Charles Burnett was awarded this honorary Oscar, along with actor Donald Sutherland and cinematographer Owen Rosman, who's known for The Exorcist and Network. Also, Alejandro Iñárritu, who you probably all know from me blabbing about it all the time, is one of my favorites, was also awarded a first-time sort of special commendation for his VR installation called Carne y Arena. I'd kind of be interested in your take on this from your L.A. days, Charles, but I, I found it really interesting to read the takes on this event in several of the industry press outlets. So like Deadline made the point that everyone who has an Oscar horse in this year's race will come out to this Governor's Award thing so that they can like display their bright, shiny stars for the last time in front of a room of Oscar voters, which is the type of thing that those of us outside of the L.A. world and like in the indie thing like don't even really think about. I I will say as an indie person in L.A., I had no idea that was a thing. 
I do know it is a very nice theater. I've been to screenings at the Academy's Theater, and it's beautiful. Um, but I didn't know that was a thing. It, it's like a smart move. Because the biggest problem, like, from the people I know who are in the Academy, which is not many, the biggest thing is that they all just want to watch screeners. They never want to get together. They never want to leave the house. Like, they, uh, I have heard people anecdotally complain that it's really hard. You do a screening for the Academy in Beverly Hills, and a lot of people don't come. So it seems like if this is, well, for an awards gala, where there's going to be a lot of celebrities accepting awards, the voters then come, so then the movies that are trying to win the awards show up. That seems like a perfect storm of glamour and celebrity. Yeah, and I actually love that it's kind of in celebration of real artists, like Agnes Varda. So and Charles cool. Burnett. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um so, of course, I mean, the other thing the outlets were all talking about this year is that, like, these sort of rampant Hollywood sex scandals are being unearthed and it changed the tone of how the event was and sort of what it feels like in Hollywood right now. And I, I think it's actually appropriate that, like, that commentary was left off stage because these are such specific honors. But it didn't make me wonder, like, whether the Oscars this year will feel different. Will they address any of this stuff head on? Will they be able to get away with just ignoring that elephant in the room? If they ignore it, they're fucked. Yeah, I don't think they'll ignore it. But, like, how do, you, how do you do it? You know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you get Seth MacFarlane to write a song. Ew. I mean, he strikes me as, like, someone who's going to eventually come out as, like, a creepy Well, perv. I mean, he has a notorious reputation as a ladies' man, and if he comes out later as a perv, I'm going to look stupid for saying that. But he also made jokes about all of this for years. Right. There were jokes about Kevin Spacey on The Family Guy. He, he made a joke at the Oscars about Harvey Weinstein. That's like, right. he has never been afraid. Like, the open secret thing where it's like, everybody knew and no one talked about it. He always talked about it. Now, he did it for laughs, but you got to respect the fact that he was like, no, I'm going to make Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey jokes. So, yeah, I mean, I would not – if I were running the Academy Awards, I would definitely have Seth MacFarlane do a song about it. Interesting take. Please don't turn out to be a perv, Seth MacFarlane, and make me look dumb. Or, like, not a bad perv. Yeah, perv's like, fine, like not an assaulter. Yeah. Perv's great. Just don't just... – Wait, we like pervs? I mean, why not? Like, there's nothing wrong with, like, you know, being Get a little kink kinky on. here and there. As okay. long as we're all but consenting. But if you're not hurting anybody – yeah. yeah, I guess so, abusing I guess that power. You guys have more experience than I do in that realm, but you're older, so. <laughs> I mean, you do get yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to my news item this week. Uh, early yesterday morning, Kickstarter made what they called their biggest announcement ever, and that announcement was the introduction of their new funding service, Drip. It sounds kind of nasty. Or mm-hmm. or interesting Perfect. if yeah. if you if you're into that sort of thing, <laughs> you guys went dark places. I was just like thinking about fixing my sink, but you guys went real filthy. Drip is a little. I would never call a product drip. I love this product actually, and I love Kickstarter, but drip. Yeah. So it sounds nasty, but it's going to be a really great thing for artists of all kinds. So the easiest thing to compare drip to is to Patreon. Um, Kickstarter says it's built as a tool to empower serial online content creators on an ongoing basis. It enables filmmakers to receive sustained support from their audiences, and in return, filmmakers open the door to their processes, allowing subscribed audience members direct access to notes from production, in-progress cuts, and a system of rewards. So filmmakers get to decide whether to charge subscribers on either a project-by-project or monthly basis and can design multiple subscription tiers. According to Kickstarter, Drip is poised to become a powerful audience-building tool for filmmakers, as well as an opportunity to receive continuous financial support, like Patreon. 
Drip is invite only, but you can enter your email at the bottom of the Drip homepage to be notified about when you can join. Interestingly, Drip has actually existed since 2011 when it was launched by the record label Ghostly International, but this relaunch comes with the full weight of the Kickstarter experience, infrastructure, and community behind it. And just to remind you of what that full weight contains, since its launch in 2009, Kickstarter has facilitated more than $3 billion in pledges to more than 130,000 creative projects. In the film and video category specifically, the crowdfunding site has seen more than 23,000 successfully funded projects, raising over $330 million. And I used it two months ago, and it worked great for me. So, so would a better name be something like Dribble? Dribble? I don't know. I don't, I don't. No, Dribble, you know, like when you got a little Dribble coming out of your, like, because it's like a regular. I guess, like, right. I, I see what they're doing with Drip uh, in terms of, like, you get some money leaking to you, I Or, guess. like, what about Sluice? Sluice? Okay. Yeah, like you open the sluice gates I like regularly. sluice better. Yeah. Yeah, because regularly you have to let water out of a reservoir, so you sluice it out. They all sound gross. Sluice? sluice? I don't like that. Sluice doesn't sound gross to me. Really? It sounds like moist. You know how people don't like that word moist? Yeah, it doesn't sound like moist to me. But. <laughs> Regardless, I think this could really be something. I'm looking forward to seeing kind of how it rolls out. Their tagline is something like, Kickstarter is for projects, Drip is for people. And I like the idea of you know having that kind of patronage and the problem for me with Patreon or like thinking about setting myself up on Patreon is like you have to do that brand awareness from the ground up, whereas Kickstarter already has the community going. So I don't know. We'll see. Also, competition's great. So I think Drip and Patreon are now both going to be incentivized to roll out new features faster. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be good for creators, whichever platform you land on. So that's really exciting. Like I know the podcast world basically runs on Patreon but a couple of big podcasters going to drip, I think, would be fun. Video essayists do it too. A oh, lot yeah. of the a lot of the video essays we cover, the uh, essayists will have Patreon set up, um, and that's this is actually something I've been talk. I was talking to someone about this, like that Kickstarter should be doing some sort of Patreon thing, and yeah, there you go. They listened. Yeah. Finally, in headlines, many in the film community of our old stomping grounds, the Bay Area and beyond are mourning the loss of filmmaker Deborah Chasnoff, who passed away last week at age 60. She was known for being a documentarian who fearlessly took on social issues. She won the Academy Award for Best Doc Short Subject for her 1991 film Deadly Deception, General Electric, Nuclear Weapons, and Our Environment, and made history as the first woman to thank a same-sex partner when accepting that Oscar. Several of her 12 documentaries actually dealt with LGBT issues. She was also very active in the documentary community, co-founding women's educational media and being a member of New Day Films, which is, if you hadn't heard of it, a filmmaker-run distribution company for social issue films that was founded in the 70s and is still very active today. The Bay Area documentary community is the one I came up in, and Chaz was a pioneer of that community. Many of my friends and colleagues are really feeling this loss, and my heart goes out to you and to all of Deborah's friends and family. Rest in peace. And moving on to Gear News, what do you have for us, Charles? Hello, and uh, welcome back to Gear News. It's been a couple weeks off, but coming off of the wave of um, NAB East and IBC and a whole bunch of other things through September and October. Things are slow for a bit. Uh, we don't have a whole bunch of big bombshells, although I bet we're going to have a couple big ones coming in December. Um, top of the pack, Red Giant Universe expands. 
if you don't know them, they are one of the biggest plugin makers around. And they have this great tool called Universe, which is a subscription plugin service where you've got a whole bunch of plugins and transitions available to you for a monthly fee, and they're constantly adding new ones. It's kind of a nice, affordable way to get your hands on some fancy plugins. And um, they have rolled out a whole bunch of new uh, transitions and plugins for Universe, which is great. One thing I really like about Red Giant is they take uh, history really seriously. You'll see a lot of plugin makers that are like vintage TV effect, but like Red Giant will be like 1980s VHS, you taped over a tape effect. Wow. Or like channel changing on broadcast effect, which is like a distinctly different look. And they put the work in to mimic it, which I, uh, you know. As people who grew up in the 80s, I appreciate it. And, you know, hey, the Stranger Things folks, they didn't grow up until the 90s, but they love the 80s too. So um, check we, out if we you were- were VHS in the 90s. Oh, yeah, you totally did. We totally did. Yeah. When did DVD the come? DVD didn't come around until like, I don't know, I was probably like I was 10 or 11, like nine maybe? Maybe 1999? Yeah. I don't know. DVD was grad school for me. I watched VHS through college. That's cool. I mean, kind of. Two tapes for The Godfather. So- uh, Red Giant Universe VHS effects. Up next, some welcome improvements for the Teradek Bolt line of wireless transmitters. Wireless video is more or less a requirement on any modern film set these days, and the Bolt line, definitely the market leader, and they're trying to stay that way in the face of a lot of competition. They've got a new update that makes it much easier to identify a clear wireless signal. So if you're in like a busy space, like when we're shooting an AB, the sound team is always trying to find new sound signals that are clear. If you're like shooting an event where there's a lot of other video teams, like finding a clear channel can be difficult, but super important. So they built a much easier and more intuitive tool to help you find that clear channel, which is really nice of them. And then another cool feature is you can now control the boat bolt line by hooking it up to your like Mac or PC, and there's a app for controlling your unit. Now, all of these little wireless units, they all have like those little on-screen menus and the tiny little buttons, and you can figure it out once you get used to it, and it's well-designed for what it is. But having a nice big app for setting 10 of your wireless receivers if you're on a 10-camera show will be much easier. So if you're doing a lot of multi-camera work, if you're shooting a lot of events, or if you're a rental house, these updates definitely worth a look. And then last up, uh, a bit of news from Panasonic, the new Lumix G9. So some of you probably heard a little buzz about this, and it is big news, but it's big news for still shooters. This camera has a ton of features that still shooters are going to love, and it does capture video, but it's really not meant for the filmmakers. It is not targeted at us. Uh, the biggest feature it's missing is 10-bit video, which is what everybody loves out of the GH5, the slightly more expensive camera from Panasonic. So if you're a video shooter, you're going to want to spend the extra couple hundred bucks to GH5 it. If you already own a GH5, you should not be annoyed that a new camera came out because you wouldn't want a G9 anyway. The G9 is really going after like the Sony Alpha 9 sort of uh, still shooter market. Um, but it's a cool new thing, so we wanted to make sure and mention it, and especially mention that GH5 shooters should not feel jealousy. And now we're going to move on to Ask No Film School, where this week Hannah Bowman has asked about some creative ways to up-res VHS tapes. So Hannah is working on a doc in which she states that the most important footage she has is on a VHS. She wants to up-res the footage to 1080p, but she says she doesn't want to do it digitally because she doesn't want to have artifacts. 
Is there some creative workaround where she can get a usable HD image from this VHS, Charles? That is totally a great question, and it is a situation that we all run into all the time. Even though we're in a world where we're shooting 5K and 6K and 8K, there are like decades of content that are still on these low-resolution formats, and we need to fit them in our HD or 4K projects. So it's something that we're all going to be dealing with for a long time. So the first thing you point out in your question that it's the only available source is VHS and that it was originally sourced from a film, but the film is lost. And I, I just want to point out it's great you already tried to find the source because VHS is obviously really low quality. It's like half standard definition resolution. So if there is film out there. What most docs do is they pay to retransfer that film. And I've been in many meetings at the end of the post-production process where we're like, all right, which of these are fine and which of these do we have to pay to pull the negative out of an archive and retransfer? And we're like looking at it shot by shot to use the budget that is available for that. So I'm glad you tried to find the original and it's a bummer that it's lost. Also, in your question, you suggested some other workflows like putting it on a TV and shooting with a camera and stuff, all of which I think are going to give you way more artifacts than just doing it digitally. If you're thinking like a digital up-res has artifacts, it's because you've probably seen really bad ones. But there's actually a lot of techniques for really good ones. Uh, so we're going to talk about a couple. Up-resing is an area that has a lot of misinformation because the technology was changing so quickly for a couple of years that like testing by end users was never really able to compete with the marketing around it. So like in the early days of up-resing from standard definition to HD, hardware up-resing, like a machine with an SDI in and an SDI out, that was designed just to do it was the way to do it. So there was like the Terranex or the Genom or the Snell and Wilcox and like they were all expensive and you could really see the benefit. Especially since like most early software like Final Cut 7 and Avid do really ugly upreses. Like they look terribly pixely and disgusting. However, in the last few years software's come a long way. And honestly, at this point, Resolve image scaling is my go-to on almost every project I have to up-res if there's not like a cadence issue with like weird frame rates. If the frame rate doesn't have to be fixed, I've done side-by-sides and Resolve's up-res looks great. The nice thing about Resolve, too, is that if you don't like how um, exaggerated, because VHS has sharpening on it, so when you blow it up, sometimes it gets really sharp. You can go in really easily and Resolve and just take a little edge off the sharpening with a little blur. You've got a lot of creative tools to sort of color correct and smooth out the artifacts you get and Resolve is a free piece of software you can just download for free. Um, so that would be the first thing to consider. If you're having real problems with interlace artifacts, there's another free piece of software uh, doing what we can to support the free called JES Deinterlacer. Uh, it is just built by a developer whose initials are JES who builds cool apps for this stuff. And it does deinterlacing and 2-3 pull-down removal, and and it is really great. His website is very 90s, uh, or hers. I don't actually know. Let's not assume. And uh, check out JES if you have some interlace artifacts or other artifacts in the uh, VHS that you want to clean up. Uh, good luck with getting the highest quality out of that footage. Thanks for the question, and thank you for the answer, Charles. Obviously, a bunch of great films have come out in the last couple of weeks, and we're not going to be able to go over all of them that we missed while we were out, but we're going to nab some. So last week, Gold Star hit VOD. This is Robert Vaughn's final film. He's an actor that starred in such classic dramas as Bullet alongside Steve McQueen, superhero movies like Superman 3, and he was best known for his role as Napoleon Solo in The Man from U.N.C.L.E., 
in this one, uh, it actually focuses on a young woman named Vicky, who's a music school dropout who struggles to make sense of her aimless life while caring for her dying 90-year-old father, who's played by Vaughn. In a really touching role, he has almost no lines because he's had a stroke and everything is in his uh, extremely expressive face. This is Victoria Negri's debut feature, and she also wrote and stars in the film. Uh, We have an article written by her that's part obituary of Vaughn, who passed away this year, and part takeaways from her debut feature, and it's wholly touching. So check it out on the site. Uh, The film also came out theatrically in New York this week, and I moderated a post-screening discussion with Victoria and three other directors about how to get your first feature off the ground. It was an informative and really sincere conversation, and you can watch the whole thing over on Gold Star's Facebook page. So I encourage you to check it out if you're thinking about getting your first feature off the ground. And there are a couple movies that are coming to Netflix this week that are definitely worth checking out. Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton, is out on November 17th. And this is one of the most heralded documentaries of the year. As I said, it's hitting Netflix this week. It was nominated for the Best Documentary Award at Venice Film Festival and is currently being featured at Doc NYC. And if you haven't heard about it, it's a behind-the-scenes look at how Jim Carrey adopted the persona of comedian Andy Kaufman on the set of Man on the Moon in 1999. If you're not familiar with Kaufman or that movie, it's amazing, and Kaufman is crazy. And there are a lot of stories of how complete Carrie's transformation was for the film Man on the Moon and how his staying in character 24-7 caused problems on set. Now we'll be able to see just how insane Carrie's method acting is for ourselves. Also coming to Netflix on November 17th is Mudbound. This film seems to have appeared at every single movie festival this year, and everyone who's seen it seems to have absolutely loved it. It's Dee Reese's follow-up to Pariah, and it's a period drama about two men who return home from World War II to work on a farm in rural Mississippi. They struggle to deal with racism and adjusting to life after war. The film stars Carrie Mulligan, Garrett Hedlund, Jason Mitchell, and Mary J. Blige. And I have to say that this movie may be Netflix's first Oscar contender. I'm still not sure what exactly the rules are on that yet. Didn't this have a theatrical release? It's a Netflix. It's a Netflix-funded movie. Yeah. Um, Is there a distributed movie? Yeah, it was the biggest um, acquisition at Sundance. Yeah. So Netflix bought it and they didn't produce it, which means maybe they it will get theatrical. I don't know. I don't know. We should know this kind of thing. (laughs) Well, the film is supposed to be visually stunning, and Emily is interviewing its DP, Rachel Morrison, next week. Emily? She's alive? Emily is back from the dead just to interview the film's DP, Rachel Morrison. Well, we look forward to reading that, and very relieved to hear Emily's alive again. It's amazing. Now that she's back from the grave, she's very, very... Uh, productive. She actually did another interview for the next theatrical release I'm going to mention. Um, this one came out last week, too, in theaters, but it's still out. Uh, it's Thelma by Joachim Trier. He is a young Norwegian director who made a big splash a few years ago with the film Louder Than Bombs. And while most of his features are grounded in realism, Thelma breaks out of his comfort zone it's a an indie kind of sci-fi that features over 200 CGI shots, which is pretty impressive. It's likened to the Norwegian Carrie, and it follows a woman who begins to fall in love only to discover that she has fantastic powers. So Emily, who is has rejoined us through fantastic powers of her own, um, interviewed Joachim Trier about the film, and you can read that one on the site. 
Uh, he shot the whole thing in CinemaScope, and it's a really interesting interview. Another movie that came out last week in theaters is Bitch. I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before as being one of the strangest movies that uh, Emily and I saw all year. We saw it at Sundance. Mariana Polka, whose previous films include the indie hit Good Dick, wrote, directed, and starred in this film, which has a crazy plot about a housewife who realizes her husband is having an affair and then transforms into a dog. Now, she doesn't actually transform in some sort of Kafka metamorphosis way. She just mentally and physically transforms into a dog in a human body and gets chained up in the basement and covers herself in her own feces. Yo. The real insanity, however, comes across in a near constant destruction of genre conventions. Is it a horror? Is it a comedy? Is it a relationship drama? At times, it's all of these things together. At times, it is very clearly just one. Polka wrote the script in just two days, which aside from being a remarkable achievement, is a testament to the freewheeling nature of the film itself. As I said, Emily and I sat down with Polka at Sundance, and uh, we did a podcast with her, so you can listen to that. It's called How to Tap into Your Animalistic Filmmaking Instincts and Become a Bitch, and uh, it was an interesting conversation. One of the things I enjoy about these uh, our film listings on the show is that they span such a huge range of what's considered indie and, and the style of films and whatever. Like, there probably couldn't be a more different movie from Bitch than the one that I'm about to talk about coming to theaters tomorrow. It's The Breadwinner. It's one of the most beautiful films I've seen this year. It has nothing to do with women becoming dogs. Um, and it's an animation. It's Nora Tuomi's The Breadwinner, as I said, and it comes to us from the rising star animation studio G-Kids, which also distributed Oscar nominees The Secret of Kells, Chico and Rita, and Song of the Sea, and it founded that Animation Is film festival that we discussed on the show last month. Uh, The Breadwinner was executive produced by Angelina Jolie, and it premiered back at TIFF. It tells the story of Parvana, a 12-year-old girl growing up under the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2001, who dresses as a boy in order to work and provide for her family. I actually interviewed the director about creating empathetic cartoon characters and how directing animation is different from directing live action, and that'll go up on the site later this week. And now moving on to grant deadlines. We only have one for you this week. It's the Pacific Pioneer Fund, and that deadline is December 1st. So we're getting to the end of the calendar year, and there's not very many options left this year. This one is for filmmakers based in California, Washington, or Oregon, and the grant offers $1,000 to $10,000 to emerging documentarians. The term emerging is intended to denote a person committed to the craft of making documentaries who has demonstrated that commitment by several years, but no more than 10, of practical film or video experience. I will mention that, to John's point, a lot of the deadline-oriented funds are sort of, you know, winding down for the year, but that means this is a great time to um, apply for some of the big funds that have rolling deadlines, like the Sundance Documentary Fund. Yeah, and you can check out all those rolling deadlines in our list of fall filmmaking grants for 2017 on the site. And similar to the uh, grant deadlines, our festival deadlines for the year are winding down. But there's a cool one, uh, interesting one, that has a late deadline on November 19th. It's the Boston Sci-Fi Festival, which will take place in February in Boston. It's actually been running for 43 years, which they claim make it the longest-running sci-fi festival, period. It's an 11-day event with two distinctive parts. The first part is the Fest, which highlights submitted and curated features and shorts from around the world, and they also host workshops and special events. The second part is also the closing event. It's called the Marathon, affectionately abbreviated to the THON. Thon, 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 thon. 
It's a 24-hour continuous orgy of film. They say to think of it as the original binge viewing with hundreds of your never-met-before closest friends. Sounds really fun. I would totally go to that. And on November 22nd, the regular deadline for features for the Tribeca Film Festival takes place. Not much needs to be said about the Tribeca Film Festival. I think we all know what it is. It takes place in New York from April 18th to the 29th, 2018. Holy moly, I can't believe it's Tribeca submission time already. And Tribeca also has some massive prizes. Uh, the best narrative feature prize alone is 20000 US dollars. So, yeesh, it's a lot. Bling, bling. And now moving on to Weekly Words of Wisdom, right? Your favorite? Great. Yay! It's been a short week for me back at No Film School. I got back from my shoot on Thursday, but I did manage to catch a video essay that I thought was pretty interesting and something that directors should definitely think about when they're storyboarding or shot listing or doing any preparation for their shoot. I wrote up this video that highlighted the Coen brothers' tendency to use stillness in their films, and when I say stillness, you should be thinking of a couple of different things, namely the performances and movements of your actors and the movements of the camera. The camera is certainly the most obvious. Stillness can really pack an emotional punch or highlight a certain scene as significant. This is especially the case when juxtaposed against a scene that had some sort of camera movement. If you want to get really tricky, you can sandwich it in between. This juxtaposition can also be achieved if something really intense or active is happening on screen and the camera is still. The Coen brothers are big into this, but they take it to a whole other level. There are many moments in their films where one character in frame is completely still, and the other is losing their shit in some way, and this is also a powerful juxtaposition. I feel like that describes us really well. Yeah. Me still, you losing your shit, right? Basically. Great. In any I'm self-aware. Yeah. Me too. In any case, for the Coen brothers, it seems that while one piece of the puzzle is moving, the other is still. The takeaway I got from a video which was supposed to be highlighting how beautiful their still scenes were is that yes, the Coen brothers can make a pretty picture with cameras set in place, but the emotional intensity of the scene is really ratcheted to the next level when that stillness plays against something frenetic. So yeah, when you're making your storyboard, maybe make a note about how your camera's going to move, if it's going to move. I'm keeping my weekly words of wisdom short and sweet this week, just like Agnes Varda. She is short and sweet. Literally, she's like four feet tall. <clears throat> so as mentioned, I had the great pleasure of seeing her at Doc NYC. And uh, this film, Faces Places, is kind of like this spontaneous road trip collaboration between her and JR. And part of the film is them discussing their own process of how they're going to make the film. And they really decide to be fairly spontaneous about it. And she has this wonderful line where she says, Chance has often been my best assistant. And I just thought, you know, I, I want to take that to heart more. I mean, on one hand, you know, we talk a lot here about how important prep is. And I think, you know, John's learned that more than ever in these past few weeks. So on one hand, you have to be so prepared to do a film production. But on the other hand, you have to be open to those chances that life offers you to like sort of make the cinema magic. And I just love that. I think I'm going to be carrying it with me in days ahead. I think like preparation, healthy preparation uh, gives way to chance too. Like there's not, there's a direct correlation between the two. Um, if you're not fully prepared, then you don't have those moments to accept chance into the shoot and it sucks. I also just love sort of seeing this 89 year old woman who was still very open to the spontaneity of life. 
think there's like sort of a cliche that as you get older, you get more and more set in your ways. And she just sort of, as she has done her entire career, kind of broke open that stereotype. So for our shout outs, I want to quickly mention what I think is a really cool opportunity to see some of the top short documentaries of the past year for free. You may have heard that Meet the Press, which is the longest running program in television history and a weekly staple for me, held its first film festival last week in conjunction with the AFI or American Film Institute. In a very cool move, they're making 16 of the shorts from the festival available online and even on most cable on demand for the next two weeks for anyone who couldn't be there in person. So one of them is our friend Laura Checkaway's doc, Edith and Eddie, which was also a doc NYC this week. It can be hard to get access to these uh, films that are at festivals and especially shorts. Even though there are a million shorts on Vimeo, you never quite know which ones to look at. So... This should be a great place to start if you're looking for some social issue docs. Thanks, Meet the Press. And in next Monday's podcast will be the first from the ones I recorded at Doc NYC, and I'm pretty excited about it. I brought on Ian McFarland, who I mentioned from Godfathers of Hardcore, along with Jacob Fearing from Samantha's Amazing Acro Cats and Erica Kahn from The Judge to talk about filming larger-than-life characters. In other words, how do you make a successful film that really hinges on the strength of one person? The amazing thing about this conversation is that the film subjects couldn't be more different. One is the tough guy frontman of a New York hardcore band. One is the first female Sharia law judge in Palestine. And one is a woman who started a traveling circus of cats. But the lessons the filmmakers learned and the advice they share is surprisingly similar, and it applies to really any filmmaker trying to tell a good story. So look out for that on Monday. Meanwhile, we will link to all the opportunities we discussed on the show and all of the No Film School posts that we talked about at the podcast post this week at nofilmschool.com, where you can also find tons of other articles and podcasts about the art of filmmaking. If you haven't done so yet, please find the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Those subscriptions and ratings really help us a lot. And meanwhile, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim underscore John. And Charles is at Charles Hain. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. <laughs>